the subject for the evening talk is the emptiness of desire. First one has to be asked, as we are sometimes uh, asked by others, about what uh, these teachings are concerned with. They, it can be formulated in a, a whole variety of, of different ways. And no doubt some of your friends and families and uh, parents, and these days children too, as we grow older, wonder what on earth one is doing, spending one's time at a retreat center on a holiday weekend, cross-legged, observing one's breath coming and going, as though it hasn't been doing that for years anyway. <laughs> and this world can seem unusually strange and peculiar to those who have no connection or association with it. And, and sometimes we might find ourselves in the uh, um, unenviable activity of trying to explain to others what sitting cross-legged for an inordinate amount of time or kneeling on the floor or sitting in the chair I is all about. <coughs> and certainly if a person or persons was walking by a hall here today would probably shake their head in disbelief that all these people would be willing to crowd in here and not at least have half a dozen fans on the go. I'm talking about electrical ones. And so, <laughs> so this situation like this does, does appear, I think, rather uh, unusual. And not only for others who might be passing by, but probably for quite a few of you in here. <laughs> and so one asks, what are, what is the, the teachings concerned with? What are the, the teachings all about? And there are many, many ways that we might dis describe that. And one of the ways which can be described that it's concerned with release. It's concerned with release of humanity, of human beings, from being embroiled in suffering. It's concerned with the ending of desire. And sometimes, when we hear such a, a statement, the ending of desire, it's, it, it would appear as strange as sitting cross-legged and watching one's breath. And one says, but ending of desire, how can that actually occur? And the mind, very understandably, comes in with a whole stream of thoughts and says, but, you know, I desire to um, get up in the morning, I desire to go to the toilet and brush my teeth, I desire to go to work, and quite often I desire not to go to, the, to work, probably more often the latter these days. And I have desire to be in a relationship, desire to live here, live there. So how could it possibly be that a human being could spend her or his life without desire? A life free from desire. And it would seem in normal mind, everyday mind, that this is totally out of the, out of the question. It's an, an impossible undertaking. And we have seen that in our, the course of our day-to-day uh, -day 
life and in the flow of our existence, we would regard desire for us as being an indispensable, unshakable, irrefutable factor of human existence, of personality structure. It appears extremely obvious at first thought that it's part of my life and it's also and equally a part of and belongs to everybody else's life at all. So how can spiritual teachings, and particularly the teachings of 25 centuries of generation, from not only of the of Gautama the Buddha, but actually pre the Buddha, as he himself frequently acknowledged, how can that actually, that statement, release from the d desire, actually be available for a living human being who still breathes? Who still breathes? So we look at our life, and we see the days, months, and uh, years passing by, and then we ask ourselves, well, what's, what's, in a very simple term, without the content, what's the, what's the course of my existence? What am I doing with my life? Where am I, where am I going with it? Where, where is it, where is it taking, taking me? Where has it got me to at this particular point in time? So then sometimes we find ourselves re reflecting back and we see, well, before I was like this and then I engaged in particular work and study and I gathered uh, information and knowledge I've had and I really desired to go into this, that and the other and it's brought me to this point. It might be a very pleasurable point, a very painful point in one's life, but I've needed the force of desire, I've needed my will and my intentions and all that goes with it to get me to here, to get me to where I am. When we think exclusively in these terms, as we are encouraged to do in the society of strong individualism, which is, if I may say, a complete myth, but when we live in this way, of this uh, notion of strong individualism, we get the idea, the self gets the idea, wherever I have got to in my life, I have got to through my own efforts. I've got through, th through my own hard work, through my own commitment, through my own striving, through my own desires, it's got me to where I am now. Heaven or hell it might be, but I've got there, I've got here through my desire. And when we think this way and believe this way, we believe in this mythology, we've made a whole ideology out of this in, in our society. When we believe in this way, then we think where I really want to get to in life, which often we actually have no idea if we're honest with ourselves, <laughs> but ne nevertheless we do these funny things. When we have this belief, my desire has got me to here, then the mind will continue to think this way. It has to think this way. And it will say, right, I want to get to somewhere else in life, some other point in my life, so I'll go for it. I'll work up my desire, I'll work up my uh, uh, wanting mind, and I'll go to that next point in life. 
and they had to do this, that and the other, and they had to tread over and walk over a few people to get there, but go for it. So with the movement of desire and the movement of wanting which takes place for ourselves, and when we're imprisoned to this belief, which we can't see any release from, then that desire leaves and runs amok. We don't even realize it. Because that form of desire, that expression of desire, is wrapped up in self. It's wrapped up in the view of what I want for me, what I can get for me in my life, and if one is slightly generous in life, it might extend to one's partner, and if one's a little bit more generous in life, it's getting rarer to one's children. Getting it a bit further out from that field, it gets a bit thinner on the ground. Because desire and self so frequently and so easily are bound up together, we can't see the release from it, and all that we can see is the day-to-day -day mantra of what I want. Is that a way to live? Surely, surely, surely there has to be some alternative to this. Somebody, I did some work for the, for the Green uh, Movement. The well, Green Movement does some work on me, I've never been quite sure which way around it works. In the days of the uh, early uh, 80s, we used to say, resources are running out, that's what we used to say. This desire is crippling humanity, it's crippling the earth. I just had a conversation with uh, one of the people in here who was telling me how the gap between the rich and the poor, between the so-called developed world, which is utterly undeveloped and very immature, and the developing world, the gap is growing bigger and bigger. The poorer are getting poorer, poorer. The richer are getting richer. The psychological component for this gap is desire. Africa is being written off. Africa is being described in Europe as a dying continent. It is being forgotten. So when we're speaking of desire and self, and all the consequences of it, we're not just speaking of you and me, that we live a little bit more comfortably with our desire. We're speaking in another way. So there's this movement of desire. And the movement, with the force of self and I, which accompanies it, can't see other than that. It can't see, as it were, around the formation of the wanting. It can't, it, it loses all sense of vision and release because of the potency of this mental formation and the immense consequences worldwide. And we have highlighted, please understand this, we have highlighted desire as a virtue in life 
providing it's within the law. That's what our culture has done. It worships at the altar of desire, providing it's within the judicial system, or if we can get away with it. Sometimes, for those, uh, those of you who hear this story, if I may say many, many times, sometimes people are engaged in the field of work, the field of study, the field of responsibilities, and that action is concerned with living in the world in a, an, an aware, should we call it an awareful way, in a way of concern, in a way of wisdom. In that concern, of course, at times, there is the movement of the wanting, the desire, which enters into that. That means the desire has with it that component, very humanly, of self-interest. I'm engaged in work, I'm engaged with the welfare of others, creatures, environment, and I'm committed into that in various ways, and then the force of the desire comes up of self, as a component of that activity. What happens then? What happens? And one of the things which is happening, and I hear the voice and the voice of struggle with it, of this from people quite regularly, is that in the movement of that desire, one sees something which one knows is unacceptable. One sees a force of desire operating around, which is exploitive, which is selfish, greedy, violent, abusive, taking advantage, cheating, whatever form it might take. And one is endeavouring to live with awareness and, with a, and in a, a way of conscious living, which is what the teachings are concerned about. One wishes to remain true to those and the principle of those, and then one finds oneself exposed to a situation where one is saying to oneself, I see this desire going on, and I see the pain and the suffering it is causing, either to those who are around or to those further afield, because of the force of somebody's desire or a group's desire or a board of directors' desire, or uh, individuals, or whatever, and something doesn't feel right about it. The desire is under question. Sometimes people notice that desire in themselves, let alone outside. Forget rich, quick mentality, getting what I want mentality, regardless of mentality. This is the force of desire with ego, as it were, the dark colouring running through it. Then we are faced with some critical issues. Because when the desire, if it's elsewhere around us in life, if the desire comes up, and then that desire about with oneself involved, it's going to hinder the capacity to act wisely. It's going to hinder the capacity to speak, to, to respond to a situation which one knows is unethical or exploitive or violent or corrupt in some way or other. And sometimes the person, the human being, he or she sees this. And when the desire comes up in that way, it usually shows itself in one or two ways. One way is one feels very upset and very angry and there's an outpouring of that 
the desire shows itself in a negative force which spills out negatively all around one. And sometimes the force of the, de of the desire is, it comes up as fear. One is afraid to speak. If I speak, if I, if I, if I bring my awareness to this, if I receive any more information, then something might happen to me. I might be rejected, I might be ignored, I might lose my job, I might lose my credibility, my face, or whatever. This happens in numerous situations, every day of one's life. This is not an occasional situation. Numerous situations of one's life. And sometimes, when the, the eye comes up with that desire, shall I, shan't I, and it moves in that way inside of us. One, say, one says sometimes, I'm not, I, won't, I won't say anything, I won't do anything, whatever. I say the ego at that time is in full flight in retreat. And it's not this kind. It's the fear, the desire has shown itself in fear. The fear, the movement of withdrawal from the situation. So I say, let us watch desire in the form of fight, desire in the form of flight, the desire in the form of attack, the desire in the form of defend and withdrawal. That's movement, that's, that's what we call desire in the spiritual tradition. Can I discover the emptiness of it? If one can, this is called release. One has discovered the very heart of the teachings, right in the moment. Recently I heard a story, and not an unusual story, it takes different forms in this world. And sometimes you too may, may have noticed one comes on a retreat, one expects to be, as it were, looking at oneself in a retreat, meditating, you pass through the day, and during the day you experience the, the general bouts of uh, tiredness, the bouts of restlessness, and the agitations which come. And then, with the agitations, quite commonly, will come um, the uh, mantra of, what am I doing here? And this mantra plays itself. It's, uh, it actually, his history shows that it's considerably more successful than TM. And, <laughs> and, and it's not 20 minutes in the morning and the evening, but 45 minutes several times a day. And so there's some agitation and restlessness. In the agitation and restlessness, the uh, doubt may come. Doubt towards oneself, doubt towards a situation, <coughs> doubt about life or whatever. And then one finds, in that, uh, that with restlessness and doubting which come to us, that sometimes when the restlessness begins to settle, we're not fighting life in a way, which is our own life. We're not fighting the here and now, not concerned with the here and now of just us sitting here together, the here and now, which has no walls to it, really. And we're not fighting, we sometimes notice that the restlessness begins to diminish, begins to quieten down, and so there's the doubt. Restlessness arises, doubt arises. Restlessness diminishes, doubt diminishes. One begins to see the, 
the, the, the interrelatedness of this. And how often in your life and my life there's been a circumstance in life, personal relationships, engaging in meditation retreats, being at work or study or whatever, and we've been touched in some way, affected. Being affected generates some desire. Shall I continue or shan't I continue? Shall I stop or shan't I stop? So the movement of the desire is there, there's some restlessness which goes with that, and then in the restlessness, which is desire moving and getting fragmented, then comes the subsequent doubt. And that whole package goes together, and then it quietens down, and that doubt in the relationship, that doubt in the work, or doubt whatever, begins, not always, to diminish. Because it's all part of the same movement. And sometimes, and as I say, you come and we come to sit and to walk. We think we're just going to look at ourselves, and we spend half the day looking at somebody else. Not necessarily here, somebody who's in our life. We're getting far more insight and knowledge about where they're at than when we're at. We're at. How come we can be such skillful, spiritually minded psychologists with regard to others? And somehow with ourselves, we're not quite so clear. So anyway, I heard a story some time ago. A person came on a retreat. It was actually for, for, uh, for, se for several uh, weeks at our centre in England. And he had just um, ended his, uh, oh, they actually the, the, the couple, had agreed to end the, the marriage. And the, they had lived together for some several years, for some five or six years. And he told me that when they got together, it was his um, second um, marriage, that when they had uh, got together, he had money from the sale of his previous uh, home, again, it's not an uncommon uh, story, sale from his previous home, and he decided to put the money into this uh, new uh, house, and they bought a house with he able to contribute the substantial part. He had worked, she, the partner, the wife, had decided to stay at home. After some years, uh, some five years had gone by, and they uh, agreed to um, um, uh, separate to get a divorce, and it was, you know, really was quite amicable there. I'm not saying that the reason he was on a retreat, that people go on retreats, it automatically means divorce. I wouldn't, <laughs> would, I'm not trying to put that message uh, out, <laughs> honestly. Uh, and so he was participating on the retreat, and the agreement, the agreement which they had come to was that since they'd been together and she had looked after the house, he had worked, that in fact they would split the house, the sale of the house, 50-50, right down the line, 50-50. And the house, put it into um, US uh, dollars here, was, I think it was worth, whatever it was, about $100,000, they were going to receive $50,000 each, and continue to be friendship and make their own lives. During the retreat, he received a check for $40,000, and his ex-wife had therefore had received a check for $60,000 from the same solicitor. <coughs> and to say he wasn't happy about it would be an understatement, typically British understatement. <laughs> and you can imagine what his sittings were occupied with. 
not only he couldn't find the breath, he couldn't find his nose to get where the breath was. <laughs> so the movement inside, of course, was desire, as he interpreted. The desire, what he felt, in, was that justice should be done and it should be, as agreed, 50-50 in this situation. In fact, I was just wondering, as I'm telling you the story, in a way, that being in California, you know, why should I be telling you this story? You, 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 you all know it. You, <laughs> you <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't this California life and its personification? Anyway, sorry about the image. And <laughs> so there's the movement, the movement of wanting there. And one might say, let it go, as he kept saying. Should I just forget it? Should I just let this situation go? Just let the desire rise and fall and rise and fall and hope that there will be a falling without a rising <laughs> because that's what meditators are supposed to watch for. I wonder. I wonder. Is it? Not necessarily, and I think a person, and it's not to me in this case as I didn't and in other cases to make judgments and decisions on this, is it necessarily that it's the movement of desire is in fact selfish, ego, clinging, holding, or whatever, which certainly can be there, or can it be that there's an awareness of a situation there, and that awareness of a situation can be free from the movement of desire, but there's a clarity and a perception and a response to it, without the charge of egotism, selfishness, and the force of desire. Can we, as human beings, go deeply into situations and clearly, heartfully, not mentally, heartfully know the difference? These teachings are concerned about realizing the difference and realizing the emptiness of desire without becoming passive. In the movement which we experience of desire, and therefore I'm not giving it a good press this evening, and I never have done, and I hope I never will. In the movement of desire, with self, with the form of wanting and egotism that's pervasive in the la Dharma la language, we see too that how very, very easily it can occur that it gets too much rationalization for its support. We kind of affirm it too much. <coughs> and sometimes, when somebody gets too much of a bad press, like I am prone to give it, it can bring a reaction to it. And the reaction gets summarized in a kind of one-liner which says, oh, the teachings are, I must get rid of my desire. I must be a desireless blob and not allow myself any desire. When the thinking is like that, if the thinking draws that conclusion, it would be a tragedy. Because what it would be saying is, I have this desire, 
when my negative judgment rebels, represses, pushes back, denies the desire, and in a way, desire gets you to push back desire. I desire to stop the desire. I des desire to end the desire. And the desire rebels on itself. How can it be understood if it's denied? How can it be understood if the mind comes in and says, Oh, I shouldn't have desire. I shouldn't experience desire. I must stop desire. It generates a pressure already. Born of the desire to stop desire. I say, let's have the desire right out in front. Let's, let's, let's let it be right there, very, very clear, and let's see what we can discover. Let's see if we can realize its emptiness, because desire doesn't encourage action. Actually, it inhibits it if we really explore it and realize the emptiness of desire. So see, sometimes there's this extraordinary thing of its movement, and its movement in the in the course of time. We see, as we've mentioned, and there that it it rises and it falls as an extraordinary phenomena. And then sometimes we say, and the language, as I notice when coming to different parts of the world and coming here, that it changes over the over the years. And one of the more recent forms of rhetoric, which is um, in the circles which you and I move in, which I think needs to be really checked very honestly and rather scrutinized, is the a popular one-liner, it's not mine, it's a popular one-liner, which is, I give myself permission to. This is getting used quite frequently these days. And when a person can add onto the end of I give myself permission to, anything in the world, anything in the world can be attached onto this to make one feel better about what one is going after. Whatever, who, sometimes whoever, <laughs> whatever, whoever it might be. Why aren't we saying I give myself permission not to go after? Why don't I hear that when I come to California, or to England, or Germany, or other places? Why don't I say I give myself permission to let go of this? To see this come and go, and without a moment of sustained clinging to it? Why don't I say this desire is empty, it generates suffering in our world and the divisiveness of our world? Why don't I say to myself, I'm not interested in leading that way of life because I sense there's something other which makes desire an imprisonment. So I think our time here together is precious. And I think it's precious in a way, because each person who has come here has, for a variety of different ways, in a way, 
has said, a lot of the things which I have desired in life, which I've worked for in life, which I have gathered and accumulated in life, I am willing to put aside to be here. I am willing to put aside many of those desires which I have had and which have framed my view of life, I'm willing to be without them here. And life becomes, in a way, in the immediacy of being here, much more simple. Can we, can you and I, in being here, in the moments, I don't care if it's just one moment the whole weekend, because that moment would be a wonderful blessing, that one can sit or walk and be, and be with oneself, be with the here and now, and in the moment, not feel any desire for anything or anyone anywhere in the world. Not for any special experience or any special state or any special event for oneself, no desire for anything or anything elsewhere in this magical earth. I mean, just perhaps just one moment of sensing heartfully and in a way, rather respectfully, a moment in which there's no desire. Not making any projections and interpretations or the desire is just waiting to come up like a piranha and grab my attention. Not making any speculations in that way, but just a moment of no desire. And just being touched with that moment. Just being receptive there and with full presence. Sometimes the thoughts may come. But what will happen? Will I do anything? Will any, any event? Will I respond to the world? Will I change posture? Will I stop walking? Will I, will I, will I, will I? Life will carry on. Life will go on unfolding itself in its all of its vastness. Let's, let's have faith in that moment of no desire of filling the mind. Let's sense that. Let's trust that, that small opening. And this we pay the greatest respect to all life. The greatest respect to all around us, to the people far and the people near, because we sense what it is for a moment in which there is no desire, and, and the wonder and the beauty and the miracle which can emerge through that awareness. May all beings explore life. May all beings see into the formations of desire. May all beings know heartfelt release. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.